0: So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 8 and 9 are about giving. Now you may remember a while back I preached a message on sexual purity, in one of the Thessalonian epistles, and you know it's one of the really really hard passages to preach. And um, for most pastors though, this one is harder. Uh, this is a, a message about giving. Uh, Paul is collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Between the persecutions and a famine, they're really in tough shape. They need food. They need to be able to eat. And so Paul is encouraging them to the people that he's visiting in Corinth to be ready with the offering that they had promised. Uh, Preaching on this, so I say, is really hard. And if you want to know why, Well, there are a number of reasons why I consider this one of the hardest kinds of passages to preach. Now, my impression of Christianity when I was an atheist was the PTL Club and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, They spent their flock's money on Rolls Royces, diamonds, and even an air-conditioned doghouse that was bigger than my house at the time. And I was, you know, pretty disgusted by that. I, I looked it up. List of the richest pastors. Kenneth Copeland is worth 300 million dollars. Pat Robinson, 100 million. Joel Olstein, 100 million. Uh, Kenneth, uh, let's see, Andy Sandy, 45 million. Rick Warren, 25 million. T.D. Jakes is only worth 20 million. On the list, I was very surprised to find John MacArthur. They say his net worth is 15 million. And they list his salary, and I found that on multiple sites to verify, and his salary is about 160000 a year from the church. Now, I understand most of his money probably came from his books and the number that they've sold, but people criticize him for being you know, rich and having too much income in the church and people are living in poverty, but you live with $15 million. And so it, it, it can be hard to preach about money. And of course, any time a preacher preaches about money, people are going to think is the preacher being greedy? Does he want more money? Now, to that, first, let me say I'm perfectly happy with the way I live in my in this church. I love the church. I love the work. I'll quote Paul. He said, "Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to be a, how to abound. And in every circumstance." I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things for him who strengthens me. Now, I am happy with whatever the Lord provides for me and the situation that he gives, and I will trust in him and do the job. I'm not asking for money. But that's the fear that pastors have. If you preach about giving, people think it's your greed. You want to be like those and have Rolls-Royce and diamonds for your wife and an air-conditioned doghouse for your beloved pooch. Of course, some of the fundraising techniques out there are really evil. I've joked about this before, but 1986, Oral Roberts said that by the end of the year, he had to raise a lot of money or God would take kill him. He would die. And the following January, he hadn't raised enough, apparently. In a fundraising drive, he announced to the television audiences that if he didn't raise $8 million by March, God would call him home. Now, it's kind of an extreme example, but people get very passionate about getting money. And it makes it embarrassing for a, an honest church to say, we, you know, we need money to fix the roof. I remember a friend of mine's church needed a new roof. It was leaking. If you don't fix that, what happens? You know, I mean, the church is going to be ruined. And so they had an urgent fundraising. It just makes a, the dishonesty out there, though, makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And it's not just the, the wicked, godless pastors Um, Sometimes honest pastors fall into the trap. I remember the story of a pastor who was raising money for poor, starving orphans. One of the longtime donors for the orphanage went to visit the orphanage overseas, found they never received any money. Now, nobody thought the pastor had stolen it. It all went to his radio broadcast, which he couldn't afford otherwise. But that kind of dishonesty destroys trust and makes it harder for us to talk about the subject and it's hard for most people to hear. Uh, honestly, studies say between 10 and 25 percent of families tithe in a church. Those who don't tithe aren't going to be happy to hear about it. And even those who do tithe and who give beyond that, you know, when we hear of a need... We feel, oh, I need I want to do more. I wish I could do more to help these people. I wish I could do more to solve the problem. I wish I had more money to give. And they 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 also they feel they feel the pain when the subject is preached. We know though that all scriptures God breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. This passage is God-breathed out, and it's useful for us in this section, eight, chapter 8 and 9. Um, we'll be looking into it and looking into it faithfully, because that is what we do. We go through the, the book at a time in the Bible and preach everything that we find there, the whole counsel of God, whether we're comfortable with it or not. So I hope you'll bear with me as we go into this subject of giving, that he's encouraging them to be generous and to give. And we'll be looking at it for a few more weeks. Uh, This week, the encouragement to give. Next week, the accountability with what is given. And then the final, Lord willing, will be about reaping what you sow in generosity. But first, let us pray. We'll look at this passage about his encouragements to us to give. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, that you have put instructions in there for us to clear our minds on what we are to do and what we're not to do and how we're to glorify you and enjoy you. And we thank you, Lord, for that and pray that as we look at this passage, that you would encourage our hearts with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, he starts off verse 8 saying, This is not, I say this not as a command, but to prove. By the earnestness of others, your love is also generous. Or genuine. There are actually commands in the Old Testament and examples of giving and calls for generosity throughout the Bible. Uh, first mention we have of tithes was Abraham. Remember Lot was or Sodom and Gomorrah were attacked, and Lot was carried off and all of his property. And he was going to be essentially a slave to these three kings who attacked them. And Abraham raised up the men he had and took on the three kings and conquered them. And on his way back, Melchizedek comes out to meet him. In Genesis 14, 18 and 20, 18 through 20, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's also mentioned in Hebrews 7, first ten verses, that story. Uh, God was the one behind Abraham's success. Abraham knew it. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything. Jacob, after he fled from his brother, we all know how that turned out. Jacob earned his name well. Uh, But he had a vision of a ladder that went to heaven. And after that, he made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Genesis 28:20 20 through 22. And so he is basically saying if God would be his God, Jacob would give his God a tenth of everything he received. And that was what the tithe was. When God made a covenant with the house of Israel... We read about the tithe a number of times and it says every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And he mentions the same thing about herds later. In other words, for them, the tithe, the first tenth, belonged to God no matter what and you were to give it to him. And it was holy. And that tithe had a purpose in the Old Testament. At the end of... We read talking about it, but it's clearest in one passage. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce. Now, the word produce there can be income. So the tenth of your income, your revenue, your gain. And the same year, laying it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion of the inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are with you within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. A good summary of the purpose. It was the Levites who served God and didn't have their own inheritance from God, as well as the widows and the poor and even the sojourners who were living amongst with the Jews, living with them, not just passing through, but living and working in there. If they were poor, they were to be fed. But the primary purpose was for the running of the ministry. The priests and the sacrifices, the Levites and the care of the tent of meeting in the temple were to receive their income from the tithe. Israel as a whole was never willing to faithfully do that. And God punishes from the, them for that sin. And in Malachi, we read this. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, or tithes and offerings, the word can be translated. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, the God of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there is no more need. Malachi 3:8 through 10. A wonderful promise there, as well that God will bless you and you will have even more abundance. The idea being that if you give me my tenth, I will make sure you produce more than the tenth you've lost in blessings to you if you're faithful and honest as an entire nation. Uh, interesting and blessed promise. Paul makes something similar, said in chapter 9, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9 6. Uh, the, uh, the promise is a great promise. You will not suffer by giving to the Lord. I remember when I first became a Christian. I wasn't sure about this offering plate they were passing, and they put the number of it in attendance on the bulletin for last week, and they put the amount of the offering. So I quickly did the division and found out I owed $21 uh, a week. Yeah. We had a lot more people than tithers. It wasn't until later that a man, uh, one of the elders, took me aside and wanted to know if I was tithing and explained the tithe to me, 10%. And I went away thinking, oh, my, how can I afford 10 percent? Oh, and that elder, by the way, eventually ran away with his secretary and abandoned his wife and children. Uh, not a good testimony for that. But I thought, you know, looking at my balances and my books, there's no way I can give 10 percent. I won't be able to pay my bills. But I decided after reading, the, reading carefully and doing a word study on the word tithe and offering, I decided I would do it. And sure enough, I had more left over. (laughs) I guess my gross habits were no longer exceeding my net income. And it worked out. The Lord promises to bless if we are faithful in doing what he called. Now, some argue that in the New Testament, the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ, and we no longer have any obligation to give. Uh, We noted that the practice predates Moses. Abraham did it. Jacob promised it as part of being a worshiper of God. It's not ended, the idea of giving to God. And I don't think even the idea of a tenth is ended yet. Just as in the Old Testament, the money was used for the Lord's work. So in the New Testament, Paul writes in Timothy, in 1 Timothy five seventeen and 18, that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And that's talked about a couple of times. Why did God say that you can't muzzle the ox? Well, it was written for God's people, not for the ox. And that money comes from the tithes and offerings. Generosity is also commanded and promised with a reward. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38. Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Hebrews 13:16. And again, in John says in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If any one of you has the Lord's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This whole thing that we're talking about, this whole encouragement Paul is giving them forgiving and his collecting of this offering for the, the, the poor and hungry saints in Jerusalem is about brotherly love. Paul's point in our text here, if we look at it, is to prove their love by their deeds. Right? This is not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Prove their love by what they do. Whenever we think of something like that, where does our mind go but to James? James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. He's been making a point of how saving faith produces new works of righteousness in us. And why is that? Well, because our saving faith comes from a new heart. He's taken out a heart of stone and God has put in a heart of flesh. And that new heart produces new works. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if your faith doesn't produce good works, then it isn't faith that came from a new heart. If it didn't come from a new heart, it's not saving faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and well-filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James two fourteen through 17. So he uses an example of this, you know, go and be well fed, but not doing anything. We're not showing love. We're not demonstrating the, the desire to help our brother. We're just being a hypocrite, really. If we have the ability to do something. So considering this, this is about brotherly love and about showing your brotherly love by taking up this donation for those brothers who are in dire need. This isn't for you know, the pagans. It isn't to give drug addicts food so they can afford the drugs. I remember years ago when Bill Clinton was president, he gave all this money to North Korea, and they promised they would stop developing nuclear weapons. Uh, but, you know, so he's given them all this money for food and giving them free food. Well, the money they didn't have to spend on food, they spent on nuclear weapons. The cash he gave, they spent on nuclear weapons, and they had nuclear weapons in no time. And, you know, he was enabling this evil regime to have nukes. Well, when we give money to somebody who's lost in sin that's costing them all their money, be they an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. We give them food, there's money they don't have to spend on food they can use to buy drugs and alcohol. If we give them cash, they can use it. We're enabling their sin. That's not what we're talking about here. In this context, it's the brothers in Jerusalem who are suffering persecution, who have suffered the loss of their homes, of their properties, their jobs, who are not allowed to be part of the Jewish society anymore because of their faith in Christ. They've been excommunicated. And now there's this famine, potentially a famine going on at the time, they really need help. And we're helping God's people through a difficult situation. And we show our love by doing that. And Paul's encouragement to them is, as the Lord has done it, so shall we. Paul encourages them with an the example of Jesus. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus was rich before his incarnation. How was he rich? Well, we read in John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As the creator, all things belonged to him. God says in Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God made everything. If he wanted something, he can make more. Or he could take what is his. It all belongs to him. He doesn't have need. It all belongs to him. Jesus had everything. There's nothing in this world, material world, that could benefit him beyond what he already had. He was rich, the richest you could be. He sat on a throne in heaven, served by the entire heavenly host of angels, owning all the world. Yet he became poor for us. How did he become poor? Well, his incarnation. Long ago in Philippians 2, we considered this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. same concept we're talking about here with this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or, or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself and came, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, Philippians 2, 4-8. through 8. Uh, this, He was in heaven on his throne, ruler and lord of all, owner of all creation, able to have anything he wanted, if he wanted anything. And then think of his birth. Where was he born? In a stable. What was his bed? A manger. What did his father do? He was a carpenter. Now, this is not a rich background. This is the poorest of the poor. Some people used to mock, you know, your Messiah was born in poverty. You know, couldn't God do better? Well, What if he had been born the son of somebody like Solomon? the richest man in all of history, the wisest man in history, would that be as good as what he deserved in heaven? No. Why was he born in complete poverty? Well, for us. For our blessing, for our benefit. He was born in poverty, laid in a manger, fled for his life. And even after he started his ministry, he didn't get a six-figure salary. What does he say? The scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus knows the man's hypocrisy. He says to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was poor. He was homeless. He lived on the mercy of others for his entire ministry. Why did he do this? Why was he willing to become poor for us? Well, Paul says, so that we could become rich. Paul said the same thing concerning the ministry that he and the people with him were doing. We read that back in chapter 6 in verse 10. He says, we are as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. How did they make people rich in the things of this world? No, if you become a Christian, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be harassed. You're not going to become a millionaire by becoming a Christian, in spite of what the name it and claim it's preach. You suffer persecution, you suffer harassment. The riches come in what? In the grace of God and being forgiven our sins and being welcomed into heaven and in being given a place in heaven with God and given a reward for our good deeds. Un- un- inexplicable riches, un- beyond our understanding, beyond our imagination. True riches. And that is what Christ gave us. He became poor so that we might become rich. I know many Christians in non-Christian countries, like when we were ministering in Cambodia, you become a Christian, you lose your family, you lose your earning opportunity. It was a struggle for some of the Christians where we were ministering, the only job they could get other than the farming to supplement their income was in helping rebuild the Wat. Wat is a temple. And if you were seen attending a Christian ministry, you weren't allowed to come and work at the Wat. Not that you necessarily wanted to, but they needed to feed their families. You, know, you don't get rich in this world, but you have great riches in the world to come. And note Paul in that verse makes it plain to them that Jesus did this. This is grace. Verse 8 or verse um, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? What did we do to earn Christ doing this for us? Uh, Paul teaches that concerning Abraham in Romans 4. What shall we say then? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For, Abraham was just for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Grace is the idea of giving somebody a gift they do not merit. They have not done anything to earn. There's no benefit to you in giving it to them, and it's called then grace. God gives us his grace in our salvations. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We were enemies of God, Romans 5.10. And his point in saying this is, as God has given you Christ and Christ is Set aside his own riches and become poor, that you may become rich, and you are now rich in faith, rich in the kingdom of God, rich in salvation. You should also show the same grace he did. Go back to the passage we read a little while ago. That you know, he, said, he humbled himself. He set everything aside. Why? To take care of our interests, and we should also take care of the interests of others we we should be gracious in the way we give to God's children as they have need. Now, think about the particular circumstances here. Who was Paul's greatest enemy as he preached the gospel in the world? The Judaizers. The Jews who wanted the law of Moses to reign even over Christ and who re- who either rejected Christ because... He was fulfilling the law for you on your behalf, and they will to accept that they wanted to earn it themselves, or you know, they were trying to have Christ and trying to have the Old Testament law mixed together. They made great trouble for the Gentiles throughout the world, great trouble for Paul throughout the world. There are hints in First and Second Corinthians that these people were active in Corinth as well. In fact, some of them may have been in Corinth, you know, raised there and were very much into the Greek and Roman philosophical arts. And mixing the two. but These were not their friends because the troublemakers were coming from Jerusalem at one point and stirring up people. And so when you think of Jerusalem as a church in a Gentile country, you think of these troubles. These people who are sowing dissension and trouble and division, who have persecuted Paul and had him uh, troubled everywhere he went. And yet they were raising money to go to them. Some in the church were of that party, the Pharisees party, the circumcision party, and were causing troubles. And yet they were, by grace, raising money to help those people. We're called to imitate Christ, just as he saved us while we were enemies, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, So we are to be transformed into his image more and more. We are to imitate his grace to others. Now he switches gears. In this matter, I give my judgment. It benefits you. You, A year ago, you started to do this work with the desire to do it. Now you need to finish it so its readiness may match your desire that you had and is acceptable. We'll stop there for a moment. However, it benefits you, he says. How does it benefit me to give up my money? Are they going to give me back more? Are they going to love me more? Probably they would never have contact with the saints they helped in Jerusalem, direct contact. Probably the saints in Jerusalem would never be raising money to help them when they were in trouble. They didn't have the money. The persecution they had suffered was going to last well, to this very day, and there was no, no probability that they would pay them back or help them when they had their need. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed." Now, they weren't looking for material gains. It doesn't benefit us in getting more back than we gave. It benefits us in that the Lord is pleased and the Lord will bless and the Lord will repay us. Uh, to the rich, Paul writes, As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, we understand that part pretty clear. The rich are often arrogant. They trust in their money. What happens when the money is all gone? I think I mentioned that YouTube guy who was living the wildlife in Canada. He was a millionaire, lost everything from the economic collapse, and decided to become a survivalist and live in a house he built with his own hands and raise his own food and hunt his own animals. He had his his hope set on the uncertainty of riches, and without that he had nothing. We are told, the rich of this age, not to put their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, treasure in heaven. Don't trust in wealth on this world, trust in God, is what he's saying. Remember the greedy, rich young ruler? He had this idolatrous love of money He wanted to follow Jesus and asked what he lacked to have eternal life, and Jesus told him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now he's not advocating that all of us have to sell everything we have and give it all to the poor and go about destitute with nothing. Paul mentions that in our passage today as we read, that he's not doing this that others would be eased and we would be burdened, That's not his purpose, to to see us without. But it's his purpose, Jesus' purpose, to tell this man the antidote for his personal sin. As you love money more than the Lord, give up all the money because it's just a poison for you. Same as he told the thief, stop stealing and go get, Paul tells the thief, stop stealing, go get a job, earn money with your own hands and give it away. Uh, That's the opposite of being a thief. So here the opposite of being greedy was to give it all up. But putting the the sin aside, note that giving to the poor would result in treasure in heaven. And that's the point I wanted to make about that. In verse 12, we continue, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time may supply their needs so that their abundance may support your need. That would be fair. Uh, J.D. Rockefeller, who was once the richest man in the world, said, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. Now, I can't speak to the man's faith, but the principle here I think is important to think about in our context today. The 15 cents of his first tithe was just as significant as 100K on his first million it's according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. You remember the story, and we read this recently, but I'll read it again. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting the money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Elsewhere it mentions they would blow the trumpet so everybody would look while they were putting in their money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had to live on. Mark 1241 through 44. She was paying her tithe, well I believe she was paying her tithe, with the money she had to eat. She was trusting God for somebody to be willing to share their food with her. And that was more significant to God than people putting in the hundred thousand on the million they earned, because they could live without one of that. It was hard for her to live without the money she put in. God created everything and owns everything and distributes everything according to his own will. We call that providence. And so the poor have little it's part of God's will. Now maybe their will because of their sin or may not be because of their sin, but because God wants them to glorify them in suffering. We don't know his purpose and reasons, but we know that he is sovereign and worked it out that way for his will. Thus, he's more impressed by her faith in sacrificing what she had than in their offerings that they often were glorifying themselves and not God. Jesus... He gives a story about money in Luke 16, where he writes in verse 10 and following, One who is faithful in very little will also be faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little will also be dishonest in much. If then you've been not faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can to serve two masters freely love one or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And in the parable of the talents, he says to everyone who has been given much, of much will be required of him. And to him who has entrusted much, they will demand more. Luke 12:48. The idea being, if you have a little, that's what you have, and you'll be faithful with that little. And God's not going to trust you with great riches in heaven if you have nothing to show for your work on earth, the way you have behaved. That parable of the talents is along the same lines. They were rated and blessed based on what they did with the money. Oh, you know, the talents, I have... You gave me this, I have given this back. Uh, We should, in our giving, be giving according to what God has given us and should be joyful with that much. I remember, and I mentioned this probably a couple of weeks ago, when I started ministering in Cambodia after I'd been there for, I don't know, six months or a year, they came to me, they wanted to take up an offering. And I said, well, what what will you do with it? Well, at the end of the dry season, beginning of the rainy season, there are many people who have no money and no food left, and we would use that to help them within the church. And so they took up their offering each week. Some people would put in the equivalent of two and a half cents or five cents or 25 cents even a week. Um, That was enough. And when the hard times came about... They had money in the offer in the bank, essentially, to buy rice for the people who would go hungry without it. To them, it was a blessing, and it was they, they they would happily oh you know great let's take our offering let's put our money in they were so pleased to see less than a dollar a week being donated because that could help the hungry person survive those few weeks or months that they'd run out of food before there was food available. I knew a number of children who didn't go to school so they could walk the fields when the rain started trying to find the little crabs and the little fish because that was their protein. They had nothing else to eat. Grasses they could eat and fish and crabs they could catch. But his point Paul's point in the passage is, you know, it's according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. His intention was never to burden the giver. You don't need to take a vow of poverty to become a Christian. God doesn't want us to be so generous we can't feed our own family. In fact, he condemns those who don't take care of their own family. God is not asking every Christian to be equal in the standard of living. The equality mentions here is not that you know, the person who is rich and has their own home and the person who lives in the street should not be made equal. because It doesn't work when you do that, even if they are Christians. What he's talking about is that they would have the the needy, the hungry, the poor, the the suffering from persecution and famine, would have enough to eat. And he's calling on them to make that, that equal, that they'd not be left to starve as if they were not human, but that they'd be fed. Yeah, the widow we talked about who put in all she had to live on, it would be a burden. And that's one of the reasons I expect it was probably her tithe on what she had been given, she wanted to give ten percent of that to the Lord, trusting that the Lord would feed her. And that is a promise of scripture. She was relying on God to supply her needs, and she was going to do what God said, which was give a tenth of her income. Paul in First Corinthians nine, the next chapter, six through eight, says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves the cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We'll look at that when we come to it, but think about it. God has promised that if we are faithful in giving to the poor, in paying our tithes and giving offerings to those in need, that he will make things abound to us and we will be blessed. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 19:17. A great promise. But think of the prophet Malachi. One of the things the prophet Malachi says to the Lord, to the people. Bring in the full tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Remember we read about the tithe earlier and what was the purpose of it? Fill the storehouse so that the Levite, the poor, the widow, the sojourner had food. That's what he's talking about here. Put the tithe in the storehouse that they may have food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on your blessings until there is no more need. Malachi 3.10 uh, The widow had a right to hope in God's blessing and God's goodness. I will do what God requires. I don't know what the consequence will be. It means I won't eat tonight, then I won't eat tonight. But I will trust that if it is God's will, that he will provide somebody to mercifully give me food to eat. She was going to pay her tithe or her offering, trusting in God. And that she had a right to hope in God in that matter. The Christian should be doing what is right before God, no matter what the consequences are, trusting that God is really sovereign over all things, and that he is honest. When he says it will work out for our good, in Romans 8.28, it will. If he has promised to give us mercy, if we do, do what we're told in the matter of tithes, then he will and we are to give caring for one another in the time of need of our brother we should give them what they need supply the relief for those starving in Jerusalem because of persecution and famine and possibly if we are ever in need God will provide for us the same way maybe not with the same people but with another you know that what do they say these days pay it forward Do what God asks, be generous. If you're ever in need, God is the one who is sovereign over all things. And if we really trust in God's sovereignty, then we will see this as right. Remember, though, he's not saying that you should be in want yourself because of your giving. He's saying you should give your tithes and your offerings honestly and correctly. And we can give without necessarily expecting them to be able to repay Oh, if I help the starving in Jerusalem, they're never going to get back on their feet back on the ground because they've been excommunicated, put out of the, you know, the kingdom of Israel. They're not going to be able to get jobs. They're not going to. You know, he doesn't tell us to think like that. God will provide when we have our need. And that day may come in this country where we have our need. We already have people, other countries, sending missionaries to America. As we've become so lost, we may at some point when persecution and hardships get bad enough that they're sending us food aid. So what is Paul's point? He's encouraging them. Be faithful in showing your love for your brothers by helping them in their time of need. Do it without grumbling. Do it willingly. And do it in advance. Be prepared. Don't be hemming and hawing when we get there going, oh, do we want want, to, how much do I want to? No, set it in your hearts. Prepare, decide. So this was taking up an offering for a special crisis, but the same things apply to all of our giving for the Lord. Let us close in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all the things that you have given us, and we acknowledge, Lord, that all that we have all that we've earned with our hands with our minds with our skills is really ours by the grace that you give us and indeed our skills abilities are also gifts of your grace and so we understand lord that when we give to you we are giving you part of what you is your own that you have given us And pray for your grace as we think about our own hearts in giving, that we would always be joyful for the opportunity to glorify you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.